A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. Whilst campaigning and then serving as President of the United States, Barack Obama relied on Matthew Barzin, asking him to run the 2012 campaign and then appointing him ambassador to Britain during the heady days of the Scottish independence and Brexit referendums. Matthew, with his wonderful wife, Brooke, redefined their special relationship by bringing art, music, and most of all, fun, to the ambassador's residence, Wingfield House. Recently, Matthew has written The Power of Giving Away Power, a must-read book for us all. He's in Kentucky right now. I'm in London. But if there is a special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K., there is definitely a special relationship between Matthew Barzin and myself. Matthew, would you like to read the recipe that you chose to read? Yes, I would be honored. Okay. Fried artichokes serves four. Eight artichokes, the small purple Italian winter variety, are best for this recipe. Two lemons, two tablespoons plain flour, Tipo zero zero is best. One liter sunflower oil. To prepare the artichokes, cut off the stem, then carefully pull away the outer leaves until you get to the pale green heart. Cut off the tip, cut into quarters, and remove the center choke. Place the pieces in water with slices of lemon. Combine the flour with seasoning. Drain the artichokes and shake dry in a sieve. Toss into the flour mixture. Heat the oil to 180 degrees Celsius in a deep pot. Add the artichokes and fry until light brown. Drain on kitchen paper, season, and serve with lemon. Thank you, Matthew. Why, of all the recipes, of all the books, did you choose <laughs> deep fried artichokes? I'm so thrilled you do because it's one of my favorite things to eat. So tell me why, why it's yours. Well, I love to eat them. And then I had the great honor of being able to prepare them when you let me, uh, I mean, cook is a strong word. You, you help let me participate in the magic that is uh, <laughs> the River Cafe one Sunday morning. And I was put in charge of the fried artichokes or a piece of the fried artichoke uh, process. And, you know, it's funny, I, as I read it out loud, it says, um, you know, carefully pull away the outer leaves. That's actually not that hard until you get to the pale green heart. And there's something beautiful about that. This was the tricky part. Cut off the tip, cut into quarters, and then remove the center choke, which sounds straightforward. But if you don't remove it enough, you have that nasty stuff in there. And then I started getting paranoid and, and your nice member of your team was sort of gently telling me to, um, you know, remove more of the choke. Then I, got, I went overboard the other way. And then I, there was barely anything left to eat. Um, and so trying to find that balance uh, was a challenge, but that's why I picked it. And what are your memories of that day? A beautiful Sunday morning. I got to put on the cool uh, white chef's jacket. So that was cool. And then I got on my little station and I had the, the water with lemon. And um, 
I was amazed by the calm. And it's funny, it reminded me when I first got to go to the West Wing. I had seen the West Wing on the television show, which I loved, and then movies. Mm-hmm. And in the movies, they always show it as like hustling and bustling, and it's kind of loud. And it was just really calm. And I felt the mm-hmm. same way about the River Cafe kitchen on a Sunday morning before any of the guests arrive. It's just mm-hmm. wonderfully calm and joyful. It's very rare for us to have someone in the kitchen because kitchen is a dangerous place and there's a lot of pressure, however calm it seems. But I think you have always been, as I said from our first conversation, really interested in food, in cooking, and the process of cooking food. Yes. Let's go back to the early days. Who cooked in your house when you were growing up? What was food like in the bars and house? Food was... um it changed because my parents got a lot of things changed in my life when my parents got divorced. I should say at the outset, mm-hmm. I have a wonderful mother and a wonderful father, even though what I'm about to say uh, sounds a little strange, which is when I was 11 years old, they got divorced. And in the summertime, my favorite thing to do was to go down to this little cottage, little series of cottages in Cape Cod. But it was my father's family's place. And so for understandable reasons, my mother was not keen post-divorce to go down there. Mm. And I said, well, that's too bad for you that you got divorced. I'm still going. Um, And they somehow listened to my 11-year-old self. So I spent Monday through Friday all summer when I was 11 by myself. And then my father would come down on weekends. And so he was a really good cook. And his mother, who at this point had died, um, my grandmother, Mariana, she was a really good cook and he'd sort of learned it from her. And so my memories of cooking were sort of learning to cook for myself and then learning to cook for friends to try to get them to come over so I'd have someone to hang out with during the week. And then the most fun was on Friday nights, all the grownups. So my father would drive down, my aunt and uncle would drive up from New York, and all these grownups would arrive and be tired after a long work week, and I would make them dinner. What would you make? Do you remember? I do. I made... um Gosh, what did we call it? It was poached chicken breasts in vermouth with Mm. sort of prosciutto and cheese and sage. So it was sort of like chicken saltimbocca, but not really that Italian. But yeah. Anyway, and I did it. And they were so unbelievably appreciative. It wasn't very good, but they just thought, I mean, they didn't have to cook it. So that was a big bonus for them. And that appreciation. At, At what age were you? 11. You were 11. Yeah. Yeah. That's very young. And it's also, it's also a performance, isn't it? That you had to... You know, it's totally a performance. And I got applause and that felt good and mm. encouragement. So that, th- those are some early memories. In these conversations, I'm always touched by the presence or influence of a grandmother, even sometimes more than the parent, that the people have memories. Well, tell me about your grandmother. She died when I was 10 or nine, maybe. And so I didn't know her... I knew her as a kid would know a grandmother. And she was quite uh, formal. Mm -hmm. But in the kitchen, she was a really good cook and chef. And she passed on to my father, and then he passed on to me. Now, this is in New England, right? So this is not, and and you remember back then, I mean, there aren't lots of Mm -hmm. choices of what you got in the grocery store. So she had this curry recipe, which I loved. Mm -hmm. um, And I thought it was the only kind of curry. Now I've learned more. But I got invited when I was ambassador to compete in up in Bradford, in the uh-huh. International Curry Cook-Off, the international which was really fun. Yeah, yeah. They did something. And so as a stunt or whatever, the embassy people were like, oh, he likes to cook. He'll cook the curry. So I cooked my grandmother's curry recipe, which she'd gotten from a British friend. Mm. And, uh, 
And they brought in some amazing chef from India and they were cooking proper curry and I was cooking the sort of watered down curry. And embarrassingly, it had, and there was, you know, lots of um, Muslim participants and, and guests and judges. And her recipe for curry had three quarters of a cup of um, vermouth, oh. which of course would not be appropriate to serve. Yeah. And so without telling me, they substituted in white grape juice instead of vermouth. Oh. And it was the most disgusting curry. So I came in last place. <laughs> Did you come in last? Last place. Uh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just absolute last. And, and yeah. I deserved it. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Help helps is a maxim I believe in. We all carry around stress and hardship, and when we keep it inside, it starts to chip away. Therapy is a safe place, and therapy is for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash Ruthie today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ruthie. Betterhelp.com slash Ruthie. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Because it's also interesting that your grandmother in that period of time encouraged your father to cook. Yes. And, and, and back to the divorce. I mean, so I never associated my father really with cooking until after they got divorced. But then he would have us every other weekend. And he really made cooking a big deal. We got to each yeah. rotate it. I'm one of four children. And um, we got to pick what he would cook. And we could say anything, like I want fried wontons. And he'd say, okay. Mm. And he'd figure out how to cook them. Mm. And so that became a nice ritual. Mm. It's rather beautiful that he chose that way through, through food to express love and to express, I'm giving you attention on my weekend as a father, do you think? Yeah. Exactly. So you had this childhood of being between and cooking for yourself, age 11, performing for others in the kitchen for your family. And then what happened when you sort of started living on your own as a student? Did you carry that with you when you left home? I really didn't. There was like this whole, I was going to say dark period, but that's sort of dramatic and it, it not, not with bad connotations. But I mean, I don't think I, through college and then I lived out in San Francisco in the sort of dot-com internet-y days and I had a one-room apartment that had a little kitchen on the side. And I don't think I ever, ever 
I mean, toasted a piece of toast or made a cup of tea. I mean, I just didn't use it. We all just sort of ate out. It wasn't very healthy. And so until I met my lovely wife, Brooke, who, by the way, sends her love to you, Ruthie. And then we moved in together and she had a tiny kitchen. I mean, you could fit, you know, one person in it maybe. And we started going to the farmer's market and then I started cooking again. And I started back after 10 years of not cooking or eight or whatever with scrambled eggs. Scrambled eggs, mushrooms, and thyme. Nice. And scrambled eggs, I think, is a great demonstration because I've tried to teach. My kids all are interested in cooking, and so it's been fun trying to, trying to pass that along. And the point, and you've made it to me and others who are amazing chefs, that you can just tell, you can certainly taste, but even before you taste, you can just look at a plate and tell if something was cooked with love or not. Hmm. And there's something about scrambled eggs, just do the love test on three different plates of scrambled eggs. You can tell. Mm, you can tell. It's an ingredient, isn't it? It is. An it ingredient. is. An ing- oh, I love that. It's an ingredient. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's so an you ingredient. and Brooke were living in, you were living in San Francisco and uh, eating out a lot. So what, what, what was it like eating out? Did you explore uh, coming from New England and, and the family and the kind of food you had there? Was it, what was it like eating out? in restaurants for you? Restaurants, you know, growing up, I mean, it was it was a huge deal to go to one. I mean, there wasn't one in our town, but there was one in the next town. And so we really looked forward to it. And so to have a city with so many right nearby and making money so you could go to them and didn't have to ask for permission, that was really fun. Mm-hmm. And back then there was a famous Visa commercial that just ran during every football game that showed the Fog City Diner. I don't know if you remember that. Anyway, mm-hmm. so it turns out where I worked at CNET was, you know, 400 yards from the Fog City Diner. I was like, I can't believe it really exists. And I got to go in. And so I loved that. And then a really famous place uh, called, oh gosh, now I'm forgetting the name, Buena Vista, which was like a famous Irish coffee place that was right near where mm-hmm. we lived. So that was good memories of San Francisco. And I think restaurants, it's quite telling the way someone actually is in a restaurant mm. kind of, I think that's why people like going on first dates sometimes in a restaurant, because it does tell you something about the person, do you think? Well, it does. And I'm reminded that what the first, so I got set up with my now wife, Brooke, on a blind date and I got good points. I picked a hipster called Val 21 in San Francisco, mm-hmm. which was in the Mission, Valencia and 21st, which is where it got its name. And it wasn't sort of the predictable preppy kind of place that she thought I might take her. So I get some early points. But then, Ruthie, mm-hmm. I did something terrible. It, the, the, the server comes around and says, you know, here's the wine list. Would you like a bottle of wine? And this is a blind date, first date. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I did it, but I said, um, no, that's okay. Brooke, if you want wine, you can have a glass of wine. I'm going to have a Bud Light. <laughs> and she went back and she told her father who asked, like, how was the date? And and she said, oh, he's a nice guy or whatever. But um he didn't split a bottle of wine. He ordered a Bud Light and I had a glass of whatever she had. And he's like, oh dear. Okay. Well, there are That's many fish sick. in the sea. Move on. <laughs> so it almost ruined it. There it you almost go. ruined the reverse. it. reverse. Exactly. Yeah. It's the reverse. Yeah. People, that's so funny. But there you are. How many years later? Uh, that still, was, yeah, we, 25. We yeah. And what about when you just mentioned before about the White House and the West Wing? And I remember in the series, The West Wing, there was always a scene in the canteen downstairs, wasn't there? Toby yeah. and Josh, and they were all meeting over the food in the canteen. What was food like in the White House? Yeah, well, I never worked there. So I got some friends of mine would, you have the White House mess, which is really 
cool and sort of neat. And because of the show, uh, it's great. And then there's the place sort of under the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which is just deeply unremarkable and just sort of like a cafeteria, like anywhere else. But it is fun. And all, you know, you want to save the little napkin with the White House logo yeah, and the little yeah, M&M. Yeah. You just sort of like, you become yeah. uh, a little bit like a child in a good way, I hope. And when you went to Sweden, was that an awakening oh. of food? What was the food like oh, there? Gosh, did I love the food. Hmm. Like herring. I mean, if you'd asked me if I liked herring going into it, I would have said no. And now I adore it. The mustard herring and the sort of just regular pickled herring and the sour cream and chives, I think it is. So I love, and herring for breakfast, weirdly. Mm. You know, that's their, mm. and then Swedish meatballs were fun to try to learn how to cook. Um, and then they're, they're famous. You know how some countries have the famously sort of disgusting to most people food. Mm-hmm. And our wonderful driver named Bjorn, who is just an amazing, amazing driver. He's an amazing historian and loves the culture. And he's from a part of Sweden called Sundsvall, where my mother had spent her summer abroad when she was 16. Mm. And so I grew up hearing this story and she, I heard it sort of misheard it. So I heard mm-hmm. that in Sweden, in Sundsvall, they take fish and they bury it for a hundred years and then they unearth it and they eat it. Now that is not true, but the kernel of truth was surstrumming, which means sort of sour herring. And it comes mm. from the herring at the bottom of the barrel and it is a delicacy. And so mm. we had Bjorn serve it to the children and to me and to Brooke. And it is like, if you open it, like it, there are rules against opening a can of this stuff in an apartment building because people really? will <laughs> just wretch. Um, yeah. it, there's, a, there's a lot of death in that can and it's pretty grim. I haven't learned to like it, but the kids were troopers. They all ate it and I did too. And so I said to Bjorn on the way back to close off these uh, surf drumming story, I said, um, I said, well, it's rotten fish. And he very sweet. He's just like, it is not rotten. It is controlled mm-hmm. spoilage. Controlled ah, spoilage. Controlled and I thought spoilage. that was such a nice yeah. distinction. And then his yeah. his comparison was, you know, gorgonzola or yeah. French blue cheese or whatever, that you don't call that rotten cheese, although you could call it that. But what a, that's a different framing of the same product. I like that. Contain, with, with controlled spoilage. Controlled spoilage. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. 
tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After Sweden, you went and you campaigned for President Obama, and Presumably, you traveled all over the United States. And what would you eat on the campaign trail? I gained so much weight, Ruthie, <laughs> on that campaign. And at the end of the campaign, thank goodness we won. Yeah. But it was a lot different from you were on that campaign, too. Yeah. That first campaign in 2008, anyone involved, wherever they were, London, back home in America, they would all sort of describe it as like this amazing sort of wave that we were all surfing and it just felt mm. magic. 2012, and I'm so proud of the work we did, it was not a wave to be surfed. It, it was really kind of like a slog. And so that kind of stress, for me anyway, we would go to this uh, place called Wildberry at the base of Chicago headquarters with my friend Rufus and Sam and Kevin and a lot of people you know. And uh, we would just eat there and we would eat really unhealthily. And so at the end when we won, their sort of thank you gift to me was a framed and signed menu from Wildberry because we had just... <laughs> overeaten there for, you know, throughout the campaign. And so then my lovely daughter, Eleanor, at the time said, right after that, she said, Daddy, you have a really cozy tummy. <laughs> and she sort of pushes at my belly. And I was like, oh, yeah. gross. And it was yeah. like a lovely way of, I mean, you could frame it differently. And uh, it was kind of like controlled spoilage of uh, weight yes. gain. Cozy and so, tummy, uh, yeah. Cozy tummy. And then I thought, okay, I need to really lose weight. So I did, which I had never really done a diet or anything like that before. But then I did and that worked. So, And so from Sweden to the wild berry, back to London. And then to that London. Was, and then the food was great again, thanks to you. And the food was great at Winfield House. Did you, did you influence them? Did you talk about the kind of food as an American ambassador that you wanted to serve at Winfield House? Well, I remember I had a phone call with my predecessor, because there are certain questions you sort of can't ask the State Department or you don't feel comfortable, sort of mm. petty, householdy things you, you didn't want to really bother them with. And I said, well, look, if you're if it's a Saturday morning and I just want to wake up early and make the kids pancakes and, you know, do I do that in the upstairs little kitchenette yeah. or do I do it in the big kitchen downstairs, that kind of thing. And he laughed. And he's like, mm. you are never going to set foot in that kitchen. <laughs> And I knew that he was, you know, he wasn't into cooking. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I'm into that thing. I, I certainly will. But he was more right than wrong in the sense that there was a wonderful team there who did it. I mean, I did go in. I never really cooked there. Mm. You know, I would say, um, can we try this? And they were amazing. Mm. But I didn't really do And I really miss cooking because mm. that was, to, to the earlier point about my father, I mean, it was a way I tried to show love to my kids. And I was gone a lot. Mm you know, out every night and was mm. sensitive. And they picked up on that because they're smart and perceptive. And so I thought, oh, well, at least I can cook and try to show, you know, if I'm missing their games or whatever, at least I can cook, but I kind of couldn't. So that was too bad. 
But I remember the food was very good there. You know, going to the residence with you and Brooke was always, it was warm. And it was, it was also, there was a formality, which we wanted. We wanted that mm. formality. I always felt that I liked that expectation of going to the residence of the American ambassador. But we had fun. You know, and you made being an ambassador fun and you made us feel welcome. And I can remember the meals and I can remember you taking me into the kitchen to meet the, the cooks. And, you know, my grandchildren can remember the chocolate fountain, you know. Oh, my so, gosh, the so chocolate fountain. you did have a – you did bring something very, very important to the food at Winfield House. Well, that team was amazing, and I'm glad that worked. I mean, I remember – you know how everyone loves, like, sea salt chocolate and there's just that mm. sort of salty sweet magic or popcorn with you know milk duds in it or whatever and so i felt that the formality of the place was so it's so obviously formal and kind of mm. intimidating to people and so we would have fun doing the sort of fancy silver trays except with paps blue ribbon cans on them you know so it's just sort of like sweet and salty formal informal and trying to mash that stuff up i thought was a way to not be overly informal, but also sort of lighten up a little bit. And now, you know, you've left us and London oh. is a sadder place and you're in Kentucky. But what about food in Kentucky? What about food in Louisville? We have an amazing food scene here in Louisville. And I don't know that this is true, but when I moved here, I was told that there is something like more restaurants per capita here than, you know, let's say any other American city. And uh, yeah, it's great food. And then the joke is, if you come here, I mean, people will be like, everything has bacon in it. And our mutual friend James, when he came, was joking. Mm -hmm. And as a Jewish guy, he was sort of like, oh my gosh, is there anything not with bacon? <laughs> and then at this restaurant, they had bacon ice cream, which, you know, proved his point. And I was like, no, not everything has. And I was like, oh, well, yes, they do. But I'm cooking as we speak, Ruthie. What are you making? I am doing a slow cooker. I don't want to, don't judge me, but I am making Dr. Pepper slow cooker pulled pork shoulder. It's sort of like cherry Coke, but the root flavor, I am told, is actually prune. Now, for reasons that are obvious to everybody, they don't market it as prune soda because that wouldn't work. <laughs> but it's sort of like cherry coke kind of thing. So I've never done this before. I am trying it. And I, my hope is that it'll be delicious, but we'll see, you know. You've written a book. The Power of Giving Away Power. And when you were writing it, did you have a way of working and eating? Did that change your, the way you ate and worked? How did you write? And tell us also about the book. So The Power of Giving Away Power, How the Best Leaders Learn to Let Go, is in a nutshell about the lost habits of interdependence. And I talk about two different ways of thinking about power. One I call the pyramid, top down, in, out, up, down, even bottom up, and that we get trapped in that pyramid and that there is an alternative to that. Uh, and I call it the constellation, a way of looking at yourself and those around you. You're your own self, you're a star, and everyone around you is a star. And what kind of combinations can you make to make things more useful and more powerful than you ever could all by yourself? It actually comes from the American logo, which you can see on the back of a US $1 bill. There's that funny pyramid with the mini mm. little pyramid with the all-seeing eye on top. And then there's the other side, the US seal. And it's got the eagle that everyone remembers and the shield. But right above the eagle's head is this thing they called the constellation. And this was supposed to be the crest and the overall essence of the whole thing. And it's called the radiant constellation. And underneath that radiant constellation is where our famous national motto 
goes, e pluribus unum, from many one. And you could say, hey, from many bricks, one pyramid. I think that would be an incredibly depressing world, and too often we act that way. But it's supposed to be from many stars, one constellation. Mm. And that's how you can get unity without demanding uniformity. You can get all the energy from diversity without succumbing to division if we choose to think of ourselves and those around us as stars in a constellation. Mm. And so when I walk into the River Cafe, I see this constellation of talented people and of the customers eating there. It's the opposite of hierarchical and the way you run that place. So, so it's an inspiring constellation to me. As the process of writing it, eating was kind of the reward. I mean, I'd basically write all morning and just drink a lot of coffee and write and eat at, at the end. I got my day's writing done, and then I could go enjoy something to eat. And I'm trying to kind of stick with that. When we talk about food and children and family, we talk about being together, the influence of food, the connection mm. through food. And I think my memory is being together in Tuscany with your children and making zucchini flowers and making bellinis oh and cooking together. We hadn't seen each other for a few months. You'd been in the United States. I'd been here. We, we've all been doing what we did. And I think the first thing you arrived at about four o'clock in the afternoon at five and said, we're starving. You'd come, I think, from Sardinia. And it was just an immediacy. And also it was, for me, a way of being with your children in the kitchen and doing something together, connecting. So I think if food is a connection and it's a way mm. of expressing our love, it is also a comfort. Yes. And so we eat when we're hungry, yes. we eat when we want to show off, we eat when we want to have a laugh. But sometimes we eat for comfort. So is there a food that you turn to for comfort? I do. And it, it's probably, it's back to when I was 11. And this was the other thing I would cook for the grownups when they came on Friday night. And it was harder for me. And I still, it is probably my number one comfort food. And it is chicken Parmesan. I mean, sort of mm. New England style, you know, not fancy. I mean, you know, breaded, fried, and then put in the oven. And I just love that. So that's what I will eat if someone else will cook it for me, or I will make it myself. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. To visit the online shop of The River Cafe, go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk. River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. 
Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.